Thank you, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Excellente. You guys ready to talk about how somebody wrote some poetry out of the belly of a fish? Let's do this. Uh, before we do, I want to keep with Parkway tradition and begin with a little story. So, uh, in the spring of 2015, it's about four years ago, our son, Taylor, and I, he is now 17, he was 13 at the time, he and I took a little canoeing camping trip. Uh, in Arkansas. The plan was we were going to canoe down the Buffalo River during the day, and then at night we would camp on the shores of the river, and we were going to do this for three days and for three nights. That was the plan. Now, Taylor and I had done a fair amount of camping. We'd set up tents, we'd torn down tents, we'd built fires, we cooked food, we went fishing. We did all the stuff that you need to do to make a successful camping trip a successful camping trip. Okay? Canoeing, however, was a significantly different thing for us. We had essentially never done it. We had maybe physically been in a canoe once or twice, always on like calm water, like a lake or a pond, and that was okay because I chose a section of the Buffalo River that was well known for being calm, placid, easy to navigate, no big deal. Now, uh, that's why I chose it, because I knew that we weren't good. So I, I was not uh, an expert in canoeing. We were not great canoeists, which I don't know if that's a word, but me not knowing what word that is is evidence that we don't know what we're doing. But I thought it through, and I thought, man, this, this is going to be easy. It's an easy-peasy trip to make. We can do this. But I can see by some of your faces that maybe it doesn't go the way I planned, but we'll, we'll get there, right? So we take this road trip from the DFW area to Arkansas. We arrive at the place where we're going to be renting the canoe. And from this point forward, there is a number of red flags that should have said to me, this isn't going to go the way you think. Not the least of which was the idea that we planned the trip for three days and three nights. That should have given me some sort of clue, but it didn't. So we arrive, we walk into this place where we're renting the canoe, and the guy behind the counter on his face is visible surprise that a person is here. I walk in and, huh? That should have been red flag number one. I give him our name, he looks us up in his little system, and he says, yeah, here you are. Let's see here. Uh, I can't quite put you in the water just yet. Uh, we got to wait till the water gets down to 10 feet. It's illegal for me to put you in there before it gets down to 10. It was up to 36 last night, but it's been coming down all night. We should get you in the water real quick. Now, you can tell already by his accent, this guy's British. <laughs> but second, that should have been red flag number two. It's illegal for him to put me in the water yet? What does that mean? Ah, it's fine. It's fine. A few hours later, literally hours, we had to wait for a few hours for the water to recede more. And he lets us know, hey, the water's down at 10 feet. We can put you in now. Uh, quick question. Y'all ever been canoeing before? That should have been red flag number three. But I explained to him the truth. Basically, no is the answer. We've been in a canoe. It was on a lake. There was no danger of any kind. We basically know how a canoe works, but we have no experience. He thinks about my response, and he goes, yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> that should have been red flag number four. He then says, hey, come on over here. I'm going to show you something. He's got this map of the river under some plexiglass on the counter. He said, now, this is the part you're going to be going. You're going to put you in right here. We're going to get you out over here. Now, in the middle here, I'll need you to pay real close attention to this bend because there's some problems here you need to know about. And if you don't navigate this right, it will sink you. Yeah, that's the quote. That's the quote. It will sink you. That should have been red flag number five. 
So he explains to us how we can successfully navigate around this problem area and then declares to us that the rest of our canoeing trip should be no problem. Fair enough. So we load our gear into his truck and we start driving to the river. Now, it's important for me to note here that in all of my research and preparation, uh, videos, pictures, all the things that I did to kind of prepare for this trip, everything that I saw said, this, this section of the river is calm, easy to navigate, no problem. It averages between 20 and 50 feet across. It's not a big, gigantic, crazy thing. It's going to be fine. And so here we are in the truck with our gear, and we drive over this bridge that goes over the river. And Taylor and I look out the window of the truck at the river, and it's like 130 feet across. It's huge. It's significantly bigger than any picture I've seen of this river. Is this the same river? I'm not sure. This should be red flag number whatever, six or something, right? You would agree with me if you were there. I think that the speed of this river would not be something that you would call calm or placid, but maybe violent <laughs> or something like this. And so we trust this guy. Why do we trust him? Well, I'll tell you why. Because we just met him. Because we know nothing about him. And because the only way he's going to make money is if he gives me a canoe and puts me in the water. That, has, that is how he has earned my trust. So I trust this guy implicitly. We put all of our gear in the canoe and off we go. And once we get used to the speed of the river, it actually isn't that bad. It was really fun. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And for the first six hours, it was awesome. It was everything I hoped that it could be. Taylor and I were having great conversations. We were seeing amazing, beautiful things. But then we come to the spot in the river that we were warned about. And I remembered, I remembered the warning. I remembered the quote, it will sink you. <laughs> now, without spending a whole lot more time on this aspect of the story, I have a 45-minute long version of this story that I can share with you some other time if you want. But the short version is, he was right. It will sink you. And so we tumped over, we floated down the river, we had a tough time. We recovered from this incident, we got off and out of the river, we got, managed to kind of regroup and sort things out, and the very next day, we had almost the exact same experience with another issue, uh, and on, at the end of this one, we now have no canoe, we have no gear, we have no food, we have no method of communication, my phone has been waterlogged because I put it in a Ziploc bag, those are super helpful. And so all of the things that we might need for success and survival are gone. And so we end up deciding that the only option is to literally get in the water. We do have life vests on, and somehow or another we manage to hang on to the canoe paddles. We, we manage to f just float down the river toward our destination. And we should be able to reach it in, I'm guessing, a day and a half. It'll be fine. This is our options, Taylor. And Taylor's like, let's do this. The water is very cold. We have to get in and out in order to not get hypothermia. So we have to get out of the water to warm up in the sun, then get back in the water. Uh, this goes on for about eight hours. And during these eight hours, we have some really great conversations. So in some, in some ways, the purpose of this trip uh, worked out to, to exactly what I was hoping for, which was to have some time with my son. But after about eight hours, we heard two boats. Now, on these boats were some shady-looking characters. These guys pull up, they see us, two guys with no boat and no food floating in the river. That seems weird. So they stop. Hey, it's kind of deep to be wading over there, don't you think? Like, I'm not wading. I lost my boat. And he goes, man, come on, get on here. So in any other circumstance, 
I would not have received help from these people. I would say, man, we're good, bro. Thanks so much for your offer. I mean, it was like these guys had banjos slung over their shoulders. Let's just say they did not have like coexist bumper stickers on the back of their butts, okay? These guys looked real shady. They were backwoods, Arkansas boys. They lived in these woods and they offered us help. Well, I need help. And so I take it. We get on the, it turns out these guys are really gracious, really kind, really generous. They spend the next four hours helping us get back our stuff and taking us all the way down to the river, the end of the river where our trip was supposed to end two days from now. Now, the reason I share this story with you is because, similar to Jonah, it turned out that what looked like potential trouble was actually the method that the Lord used to rescue us. Those guys looked like they might have been trouble, but that's exactly what God was giving us to, to save us from this incident. So, let's pray, and then I want to get into the text. Father, we thank you that you are good, uh, that you indeed do good, that we can trust you, that you are a faithful Father who gives good gifts to his children. And so as we look through this text today, we pray that you'll be near to us. When we come into this room, we bring with us fears and anxieties and frustrations and difficulties and hurts and pains and all of these things. And we ask for you to help us by your spirit to give those things to you that we might hear from your word and be encouraged and reminded of who you are and what you've done. So help us as we read together. We love you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay, let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So this second chapter of Jonah kind of opens with the setting of the scene, right? This first verse is just telling us what's happening. We just came out of chapter 1 where we saw Jonah being thrown overboard off of, the, off of the boat, the storm calming down, the sailors offering sacrifices to God, and then finally Jonah kind of being swallowed up by this great fish. And so now in the opening of chapter 2, the author is letting us know what's going on, what's happening now. Well, Jonah's in the belly of the fish, and he's praying. That's what's happening. And we might, at this point, revert back to letting our minds wander again into kind of some of the standard questions that tend to come along with the narrative of Jonah, right? What kind of fish is this? Is it a whale? Whales aren't fish. What kind of fish could could swallow a man whole? How can a man stay alive in in the stomach of a fish? Is there air in there? Why isn't he grossed out by all the nasty stuff in the stomach? He doesn't like have like a chair and table to sit at. You know it's gross in there, right? The difficulty with these kinds of questions is twofold. First, It presumes that God must operate within the confines of what we perceive to be natural science and taxonomy and things like this. We want to believe that God must do things in a way that we can reconcile with our own understanding of the world. But this, of course, is false. God can and does operate outside of what we understand things to be in the world all the time. We see this again and again in the Scriptures, the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the providing of manna in the desert, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and on and on we could go of all these places where God works outside of the normal confines of how we understand things to work. So why then would we struggle with the idea of a man being kept alive for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish while accepting, without trouble, that an entire river can be turned to blood? or that the sky can rain down food, sustaining an entire nation for 40 years, or that three friends could survive in this fiery furnace. The second reason that these kinds of questions aren't that great, and this is more important than the first one, is that the fish isn't the point. This narrative is not about this fish. 
The point of this narrative is the sovereignty of God, that his will will be done. And the grace and the mercy and the patience of God with rebellious sinners is made manifest. The point of Jonah being in the belly of a fish is to show that God, in his sovereignty, is going to rescue whomever he wills. There is no circumstance that can thwart his rescuing plan, even if the one that God chooses to rescue is all alone, sinking into the depths of the sea. So verse 2 begins this poem that we find right here in the middle of the book of Jonah. It's actually a psalm, not one of the psalms from the book of Psalms in our scriptures, but a psalm nonetheless, a song that was written in a particular form. It's a song of thanksgiving. The readers, the ancient Israelites that would have read this would have known it on sight. This would have been a form that was very well known to them. They could have read this narrative, come to this piece and said, oh, this is a song of thanksgiving before they even read all the words. So this would have been well known to the original readers. And because it's poetry, we have to shift our minds a little bit. We have to stop thinking about just narrative, which is just giving information, telling a story, and think, oh, now I'm reading poetry. Poetry is intended to, to convey more than just a narrative. It's intended to convey emotion and feeling, the posture of heart of the characters. And so we have to let there be some license given to the author, especially when thinking of Jonah's prayer here, right? Did he capture this poem in the belly of the fish? Was he actually writing poetry while in the belly of the fish? Or was this something that was captured later by him or by someone else in the retelling of his story? So let's look at the first few lines of the song. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So the main point of verse 2 is that the God of the universe both hears and responds to the prayers of his people. And the first thing for us to make note of is what is it exactly that Jonah is referring to? When he says, my distress, what is he talking about? When he, when he says, I'm in the belly of Sheol, what is he talking about? We will see this word belly in our minds immediately once we go to the fish. He's in the belly of a fish. He says belly. Oh, it must be the fish. We tend to think that, that he's saying my distress is this fish. The belly of Sheol is being in this fish. But if that were the case, then Jonah would be crying out from inside the fish and somehow looking into the future, seeing God save him, and then speaking about that future event as if it's in the past. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. He's speaking about it in the past because it is in the past. He cried out to God in his distress when he was in the water. As he was sinking in the depths of the sea, this was the belly of Sheol for him. So let's think about that word Sheol for just a moment. The word just means a realm for the dead. This is where people would go to die, right? It would be like going to the DPS to renew your driver's license. Once you get in there, you are not, you're not coming back, right? You better hope you have a charger for your phone because you're going to use up that battery playing Candy Crush while you try to ignore the smell of onions coming off the person sitting next to you. It is bad in there, okay? So Jonah's saying that once he convinced those sailors to throw him overboard, Jonah knew his life was over. He would not survive being alone in the sea. There was surely no hope for him. And he's using this belly of Sheol as kind of a euphemism for being as good as dead. Right? It, might, it would be like you or I saying, man, that guy is as good as six feet under. He's just saying, there is no hope for me. I'm dead meat. So this was his distress, being in the water. The belly of Sheol was being in the sea sinking to what he presumed would be his death. And so as he kind of passes through these waters of judgment, which is an image that comes up many times in the Scriptures, he knows that all, all that's left for him is death. In this moment of realization, Jonah prays to God, and God both hears and responds to his prayer. 
God provides this miraculous means of rescue from Jonah's distress. And God does indeed redeem him from the belly of Sheol by relocating him from the belly of Sheol into the belly of the fish. And we talked about this last week. Jeff mentioned this. The fish is not the bringer of Jonah's distress. It is the bringer of his rescue. And so all of this being under the sovereign control of God. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. So here in verse 3, Jonah is again acknowledging the sovereignty of God, specifically over the things of nature. It's only God who's even doing anything in this verse, and he's attributing even the waves to him. So the second half of verse 3 is nearly a direct quote from Psalm 42 where we find David wrestling with sadness of heart that has him wondering where God is, feeling separated from God, feeling far from God, and wanting to sense his nearness again. And I want us to look at a few verses from that psalm. So let's look at Psalm 42, verses 5 through 7. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And so these last two lines are the ones that are almost directly quoted here at the, in Jonah. And in Psalm 42, David is kind of counseling himself. As he finds his soul to be downcast, as he finds himself feeling far from God, as he preaches to himself, he says, the solution is to remember God. The solution to my issue is to praise his name. And so back in Jonah 2, Jonah is expressing in this verse a very similar sentiment. In fact, he's, if we look at verses 3 and 4 together, we can see it even more clearly. So let's look at 3 and 4 together. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, And the flood surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. So Jonah is expressing a similar sentiment to David, where he feels like he's been driven away from God's sight. He's saying that he's experiencing the judgment and the punishment for his sin. He's being cast into the deep, separated from God, and he's feeling isolated and alone. But he declares that he shall again look upon your holy temple. This is poetic language for uh, the idea that Jonah is going to remember the Lord in this moment. As David remembered you in his distress, so shall I. I will remember what you have done. And so he's going to cry out once again. He's going to throw himself upon the mercy of God and to look to God as his only possible hope that he might have. But let's go back to the beginning of of, of this phrase where he says, you cast me into the deep. So he's praying to God, and he says, you cast me into the deep. Is he making some sort of accusation against God as though though it's his fault? No, he's praying, and he's acknowledging God's sovereignty. So this is not the same posture of heart that Adam had in Genesis 3 when he's eaten of the fruit and is now being asked to give an account. His response is, well, this woman you gave me, right? His accusation against God is, God, this is your fault for having done this. That is not where Jonah's heart is in this moment. In this moment, Jonah's heart is in a much different place. He's been kind of reawakened 
to this notion that it is indeed God who makes the waves. It is indeed God who sets the boundaries of the oceans, who says to the sea, you shall come to this point and you shall come no further, who decides when and where he shall go. Jonah is seeing all of this. And so this statement, you cast me into the deep, is Jonah declaring that nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. It was God who let Jonah get on that ship. It was God who sent that storm. It was God who finally gave those sailors the courage to do as Jonah was insisting, to throw him overboard into the dark, deep water. So he's sinking, he's realizing his sin, and he's calling out to God. Okay, let's look at verse 5 and the first half of verse 6 with it. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. And so now this language around Jonah's kind of impending death is being expanded. He is sinking ever deeper into the water. Without the ability to breathe, he is surely going to die. The weeds around his head are meant to kind of evoke this imagery of being entrapped, enveloped, ensnared. He cannot escape. There is no hope. This is all kind of expansive, graphic kind of imagery of what Jonah thought was certain, that he was condemned to death at the bottom of the ocean. Let's look at the second half of verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So this land with the bars that close forever is a reference to Hades. Right, the idea that once you die, there is no returning to the land of the living, which was a common belief in the ancient world, right? So once you're in, there's no getting out, like getting caught in quicksand, right? Or getting caught in an avalanche, or like getting caught in a conversation with Lance Walker. Now, Lance Walker, for those of you who don't know him, is a member of our church. We love him dearly, and I got his permission to make that joke. He's not here today to defend himself, so I wanted to acknowledge this. I called him and said, I'm going to make this joke about you, and he said, that'll be great. So once you enter the land of the dead, the bars close on you forever. You cannot return. Jonah was convinced that's where he was, or at least that's where he was headed. But again, Jonah turns from his calamity and returns back to the purpose of his song in the first place, which is to offer thanksgiving to God, to sing praise to his name, because what was impossible, namely his life being rescued and saved, has now become possible. God has done what Jonah was certain could not be done, to show him mercy and to spare his life. Jonah had, in his despair, sunk down into the pit. So you Princess Bride fans might even say it was a pit of despair. And God brought him back up out of it. Jonah kind of punctuates this reality by praising God and just calling out his name. O Lord, my God, Yahweh Elohim, my God, this one true God has saved me. Let's look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So verse 7 is a call back to the beginning of the psalm where Jonah was just stating his case. He was in great distress, God heard his prayer, and God responded. The repetition here is significant because it kind of highlights the, the posture of Jonah's heart and his mind. Here I am, a broken sinner who's been called to be a prophet for God, and I've disobeyed, I've run away, I've tried to hide, I've utterly sinned against my God, and yet I cry out to him in my distress, and he had mercy on me. This is amazing. How great is my God that he would show mercy to such an undeserving sinner like me? He heard my prayer. He heard my cry for help, my plea for grace and mercy, and he answered me. This is amazing. 
Now, these mentions of God's holy temple, we, we saw it in verse 4, now we're seeing it again in verse 7. These are Jonah referring to the place where God most directly met with his people at this time. It was in the temple where God dwells with his people. It is through ritual sacrifice that sin was atoned for at the temple. When Jonah mentions God's holy temple in verse 4 and again here in 7, he is speaking in terms that are kind of consistent with the way God, the way God had set things up for his people to come to him. At this point in history, the temple is where God's people worship him, where they sacrifice to him, where they meet with him. To speak to, of God's holy temple is to speak of this meeting place between God and man. It's like saying to my grandmother, I wrote you a letter and I sent it to you at your house. Well, I mean that the letter makes it successfully to my grandmother, but I'm adding the language of where she is located. Right? So when he says, I, I prayed to you and it came to you in your holy temple, he means that's where we think of you being located. Now, theologically, that's not true. Theologically, the idea of God being located in one place is false. He's omnipresent, but he's using this language to describe, hey, this is where we think of you being. This is where we go to meet with you and sacrifice with you. And that's where you heard my prayer, is in your holy temple. Verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. <clears throat> now this verse kind of feels out of place. All of a sudden, we've just stopped talking about Joseph's or about J uh, Jonah's tough time. We're ta talking about his near-death experience or even of the rescuing mercy that God extends. And suddenly it's like he's trash-talking people that worship idols. I'm in the belly of this fish. God is awesome. Man, I, I sure wished I got some help. I did get some help. God is the best. Also, did you guys know that idol worshipers are the worst? Like, what? This would be like Tim coming into my office and telling me some interesting story and then suddenly trash-talking me for no reason. Hey, Carl, I was uh, making a deal with this guy to buy this 1956 Fender Stratocaster. Man, what's up with that shirt? That is the ugliest shirt I think you own. Is that a mustard stain? Anyway, I was going to get some new strings for it. And like, what is that? Why would you do that? There, this verse is certainly a warning to those who might read this poem, who might have an inclination to worship idols and to warn them because they are indeed worthless things, to pay them no regard because that would be then to forsake the very thing that they might seek, which would be the steadfast love and mercy of God. But this verse is more connected to the thematic material of this poem than it originally seems. It's not quite as out of, out of place as it seems at first. Jonah is declaring, I'm not a pagan. He's saying, I'm not an idol worshiper. I belong to Yahweh. I have not forsaken my hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to faint and idols do forsake these things, but not me. I belong to the one true God. Verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jonah is kind of continuing this thought from this previous verse. He's saying, I'm not an idol worshiper. I'm a follower of Yahweh. And in fact, when I get out of this stinky, gross fish, I'm going to go to the temple as soon as I can and make sacrifice for my sin. And what's really important is for us to see what's happening is that this is a clear recognition on Jonah's part, at least in this moment, that sacrifice is something that's required. I have sinned against my God, and what's now required? Sacrifice. And then the second question for this verse, what exactly has Jonah vowed? He says what he has vowed he will pay. What vow? 
Well, he might be talking about the previous sentence. He might be talking about this idea that he is vowing to sacrifice, and so now he's going, he's intending to keep that vow. Or it might be a reference to some other vow that isn't documented here that he's made to God. The truth is it doesn't matter which of those things it is or if it's some other option. What matters isn't what the vow is, but that Jonah is kind of recommitting himself, saying, I am supposed to be a faithful follower of Yahweh. I haven't been, and now there's this element, this essence of repentance that's somehow woven into the poem. And he's saying, I'm kind of recommitting myself to being faithful to Yahweh. And then finally, Jonah declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. What a perfectly appropriate and joyful ending to this song of, of of thankfulness that he is praying to God. So Jonah is acknowledging one more time that it is the one true God that has saved him, right? This is the first meaning. This is super obvious. It's right on the surface. He's just saying, I was in trouble. God saved me. This is great news. But in addition to that, there's another meaning behind this phrase, which is that Yahweh is the only one who does save other gods, these kind of lowercase g gods, these idols that the pagans worship, they cannot and do not save. Yahweh alone actually rescues. Yahweh alone actually saves. But there's a third meaning here, and that is that God is sovereign not over just this immediate kind of temporal rescuing of Jonah, not just the immediate individual issue that comes up with some person, but that God is sovereign over all of salvation. He is, he is sovereign over the eternal salvation that's available in Christ. God chooses who he will serve, save. <laughs> God chooses who he will save, and he chooses how he will save, and he chooses when he will save. All of salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's look at this last verse, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So this verse is pretty clear. But God is speaking again to the fish, and again it obeys him without hesitation. Out onto the dry land, the fish deposits Jonah. So where does this fish spit him out? We don't know. We just know it's somewhere on the shore of the Mediterranean. And here again, we could kind of get caught up with the questions of kind of a practical or a scientific nature, right? How did such a big fish get him up onto the land? Did he projectile vomit him from offshore? Did the fish somehow beach himself and then spit him up? Did Jonah just have to swim a little bit? Was it actually a whale and he just kind of shot him out of his blowhole? Like, what, what's, the, what's going on here? Again, the, the text doesn't answer these questions. And there's a reason, because they don't matter. These questions don't matter. The point is not how the fish got him onto land. The point is that God tells his creation to do something and it does it. God is sovereign. Creation obeys. Creation submits itself to God. Everything in this story obeys God without question. Everybody except Jonah. Well, if we were a first-time reader of this story and we had no idea where it's going or how it's going to end, well, we'd probably predict that Jonah has now learned his lesson. And he is now joyfully going to go and proclaim repentance to Nineveh, and all will be well. But that's not how the story goes. If we have read the book of Jonah, we know he returns to his sin. So whatever repentance that we're seeing here in the, in the belly of the fish, is it genuine? Maybe not. But in this moment, it seems genuine. In this moment, it seems that he's got genuine contrition. 
So there's a lot of things that we can take away from this text, but there's three that I like us to focus on. The first here is the idea that discipline brings about humility. When God disciplines someone, it produces humility in the heart of the one disciplined. We see that in Jonah here, as Jonah tries to flee from the Lord, and rather than God pouring out his wrath upon Jonah, he instead sends this this salvation through being swallowed up by a fish. This brings about and cultivates in the heart of Jonah humility and contrition over sin. And then that births out joy over his salvation. We see that with David. We see that with David when when he decides to take Bathsheba for himself, and later Nathan the prophet comes and accuses him of his sin, rebukes him for his sin. This produces and cultivates in the heart of David humility, contrition over his sin. Discipline is not always a punitive thing. Discipline, if you think about with your kids, discipline is training. Discipline is not just something bad that happens to someone to teach them something. We are teaching our kids all the time, not just when they're getting a spanking or getting a timeout or something like this. We're teaching and training them all the time. As the Scripture declares, it is God's kindness that lead us to repentance. And that's what was true for Jonah. The discipline that he received from God wasn't punitive. The discipline he received from God was kindness and grace and mercy. This is how God disciplined him, and it brought him to repentance and humility. (coughs) So God cared enough about Jonah to show him this patience, to show him this grace, to show him this mercy. And the scriptures declare that God is so sovereign, as he was sovereign over the details of Jonah's life, he is sovereign over the, the details of our lives, which is our second point. That we need to see our God as a God of details. He is intimately aware of and involved with his creation. Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so if God has purposes for this great fish in the sea, and as we'll see in the coming chapters, he has purposes for a plant, and he has purposes for a worm, he even has purposes for the wind. And if every hair on our heads are numbered by God, then doesn't he then also then, must he not have plans for us when we experience even the things that we find to be uncomfortable or painful? Should we not be able to take solace in God's sovereignty as Jonah does, at least in this moment? If we're having marital difficulty, if we're struggling with our kids, if we or someone we love is dealing with illness or chronic pain, cancer, even death, our God sees our difficulties, family. He knows our fears. He knows our anxieties. He has much to say to us about them. Philippians 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is exactly what happens to Jonah. He is indeed anxious and fearful, but he turns to God with prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving and lets his request be made known. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so there are other verses we could look at, certainly, but I think you get the point. Just as God was aware of these details in Jonah's life, even in his sin, even in his rebellion, God is aware of your life as well. He's aware of the details of your life. He's aware of the details of my life. And in, in Christ, he has grace and mercy for you. And then the third thing I want us to see here is that God is slow to anger. Jonah deserved the wrath of God for his rebellion. And yet God chose to patiently pursue him and discipline him in order that he might come to a place of contrition over his sin and joy for his salvation. And like Jeff talked about last week, we do indeed see typology here in Jonah. Jonah is indeed this type of Christ, one who was sent to preach the good news of God's mercy to a lost people who is essentially dead and buried for three days and three nights. But Christ, of course, is the better Jonah. Christ does not run from his calling, but willingly embraces this difficult task that's assigned to him. Christ does not die figuratively, he dies literally. And we see more than just a type of Christ in Jonah, we see ourselves in Jonah. Like Jonah, we will fashion idols in our hearts. How often are we rebelling against God, wanting to have things our own way, disagreeing with God in his sovereignty? Like Jonah, we flee from God's clear call on our lives all the time. How often do we read the scriptures and then forsake the clear teaching that God gives us? How often do we fail to outdo one another in showing honor, instead desiring to be honored? How often do we fail to overlook offense, desiring instead to pursue unrighteous conflict? How often do we lovingly engage our brothers and sisters in Christ directly over their sin as the scriptures teach? but preferring instead to talk to other people about their sin? How often do we forsake the gathering here on a Sunday morning for something else? How often do we desire to play God instead of rejoicing that we have a God and it's not us? How much do we want to want others to submit their will to us rather than submitting ourselves to God? How much do we want to be comfortable? How much do we want to be in control? All of these things and more. They are us jumping on a ship and fleeing to Tarshish. We want what we want and we do not want God to see. But He does. He is well aware of the sinful proclivities of the heart, of your heart, of my heart. And like Jonah, He pursues us with grace and mercy anyway. That knowledge, this knowledge that He pursues us with grace and mercy, that He has so much patience for us, should cause our hearts to overflow with joy over our salvation. Because this salvation belongs to God alone. He chose to save us, not because of anything good in us, but merely because it was His good pleasure to bless us with the gift of faith. And the result then should be this heart that desires to faithfully and joyfully pursue all that He has commanded. Not because we want to earn His favor, because we already have it. In His sovereignty, God has chosen to rescue and redeem our lives from the pit because He is a patient, merciful, and gracious God. I pray that our hearts may rejoice in this today, family. Salvation belongs to the Lord.
Let's pray as those serving communion come forward. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning and say thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word that teaches us who you are, that teaches us what you have done. And as we think about your grace and your mercy on Jonah, we ask that you will remind our hearts of the, that same grace and mercy that you have given to us. Those of us who have put our hope and faith in Christ, we do so only because of your grace and your mercy and your loving pursuit of us. And so we say thank you. So we pray that you'll be near to us today as we ponder these things, as we consider these things, that we might hold them in our hearts and be reminded of your faithfulness because we can do no good thing apart from you. So we bless your name this morning. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.